in the Netherlands in the 17th century, there was a popular style of painting known as vanitas. And vanitas paintings were very popular, and they included items that reflected the pursuits of this life. Things like books and weapons and musical instruments and jewelry, navigation tools, food, seashells, fabric, are all common in vanitas paintings. But always alongside of these elements that kind of directed you to the things of this life, the, the things we pursue in this world, were items that represented how fleeting life is, how transient life is. A human skull, a wilting flower, soap bubbles, turning grapes. Vanitas, you might guess, is, is the Latin word for vanity. And that's why these paintings highlight the, the things we pursue in life that if we look at closely, don't give us ultimate reality and ultimate meaning. Here's one famous Vanitas painting. This is in six, from 1640, Dutch artist Harman Sievik, titled Still Life, an Allegory of the Vanities of Human Life. It's in the National Gallery in London. And, and you can see the pursuits of this world, the things that we grasp onto tied to the temporary nature and the ultimate end of this life, our intellectual pursuits, our cultural pursuits, they don't preclude us from death. And a deeper study of these works brings out a couple of different things. One, some of these pursuits are, are of pride and avarice and just self-indulgence, but some of them are, are really rich in life, music and art or a seashell and the wonder of how this seashell traveled to where I'm holding it in my hand, which are not bad things, but they're not ultimate things. All of them, when we're faced with our own mortality, remind us that this world is something to be contemplated and enjoyed, but never owned. We never get to own it. It's never permanent. The reason I'm sharing this with you is because the section that we're in in, in Acts this morning, in Acts chapter 14, frames the gospel of Jesus Christ in this kind of contrast between the fleeting nature of the things we grab onto in this world to give us meaning and purpose and fulfillment and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And although thousands of years and miles separate us from the people that Paul and Barnabas were talking to, there's something eerily familiar with what goes on in this chapter and what's going on in our culture and what's going on in our community and what goes on in our world as people are trying to find meaning by grabbing onto whatever they can grab onto in this world. I wanted to show a map to orient you to where we're at in the story in Barnabas and Paul's first missionary journey. So they left from Antioch, went to Cyprus, and then Pamphylia, and then up to Antioch in, in Galatia, Pisidian Antioch. And then today we're gonna be in Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And notice that we're in Galatia now. So you should be familiar, there's a New Testament letter Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. So this is the area that he's, that he's working in now. Let's, uh, at the end of chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas left Antioch for Pisidia. There was a Jewish mob that was stirred up against them. So they left for Iconium, and that's where we're gonna pick up today in Acts chapter 14, starting with verse one. The same thing happened in Iconium. Paul and Barnabas went to the Jewish synagogue and preached with such power and great number of both Jews and Greeks became believers. Some of the Jews, however, spurned God's message and poisoned the minds of Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. But the apostles stayed on there a long time, preaching boldly about the grace of the Lord 
And the Lord proved their message was true by giving them power to do miraculous signs and wonders. But the people of the town were divided in their opinion about them. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Then a mob of Gentiles and Jews, along with their leaders, decided to attack and stone them. When the apostles learned of it, they fled to the region of Lyconia, the, the towns of Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding area, and there they preached the good news. That's where we're going to spend most of our morning. But first, Iconium was about 90 miles southeast of Antioch. It was along a main route between Ephesus and Smyrna and, and Mesopotamia. A strong Hellenic influence uh, under the Seleucid rule, and then Paul and Barnabas now, obviously, they're in a Roman rule. But there were ancient kind of Fergan, um, cult, it was a cultural amalgam because there were these older civilizations and people that have been in this area since pre-Hellenic times and Hellenic influence and Roman times. So Paul and Barnabas are walking into this cultural amalgam at this time. These two would do their normal pattern of going to the Jewish synagogue as their first stop. And, and I think we can infer a strategy to why this happens. First of all, Paul was a Jewish leader, he was a Pharisee, so he, he knew the Jewish religion, he knew Judaism, and he was deeply steeped in it before he encountered Jesus Christ. So he had an affinity and a love for the Jewish people and wanting the gospel of Jesus Christ to be known by as many of them as possible. So that's one reason. But also it's true that the synagogues would have had many Gentile proselytes, many Gentile people who were seeking spiritual truth. So they may or may not have embraced the God of Judaism, but they were looking and asking the kinds of spiritual questions that Paul and Barnabas knew Jesus was the answer to. According to verse 1, there was great success in both of these groups, both Jewish people and non-Jewish people coming to Jesus Christ. And I think this is a good model for us. It makes sense. First of all, go to the people that are like you. Not just ethnically, yes, ethnically, but, but also your interests, the things you do, the places you live, the where you work out. Those are the people in your world, and that makes up the mission field that God has for you. And also, as we live, we're to be, we're to be looking for the places where people are spiritually minded, looking and going to the people where they're asking the questions, not where they have the answers, because Jesus is the answer, but we're going to the places where they have the questions, and we're praying that God would help us to interact with people that are ripe for the gospel that God has prepared. It's one of the things when Jim and Barbara here were, we gave a report a few weeks ago from our trip to Kenya that we loved about the disciple-making movement in Eastern Africa. They have one, one stop on their strategy is pray for a person of peace in the place that you're going. And over and over again, we heard stories that when they prayed and prayed and prayed, and they're going to a new village or to a new tribe, and they pray for a person of peace, that is, pray that God would provide someone who is spiritually minded, who's asking the right kinds of questions, and let them encounter them so that they can share the gospel with them, enter into a Bible study with them. And over and over again, the testimony was, thank God for answering our prayers because we went into that village, we encountered this person, or we encountered this family, and they were ready for us. If God is in the business of, of reaching people for Jesus Christ, he's not just working on our side wanting to share the gospel. He's working on the other side, softening people's hearts, getting people ready to listen, to, to experience the life in Jesus that we have. We need to pray expectantly for that. 
So verses two and four introduce the reaction though of the non-believing Jews in this city. As in Antioch, there were Jews here who didn't like what they heard. In fact, they were so offended by what they heard that they wanted to incite violence against Paul and Barnabas. They poisoned their minds. Literally, they, they caused people to think evil about them. Not just they're neutral or they're annoying, but they're evil. And this is a good reminder for us. Whenever inroads are made in the gospel, we're going to encounter resistance. We're gonna encounter resistance because this is ultimately a spiritual mission that we're on, God redeeming people for himself. But in the face of this resistance, Paul and Barnabas stood firm. There's something about courage that comes throughout the, the whole book of Acts as the church is growing. And it's not a courage, a boldness of ego or pride. It's a courage of trusting and knowing what the Holy Spirit does in and through us and how God wants to accomplish his work. That's where the boldness comes. It's a boldness that in this setting actually had miraculous signs that were done throughout the early days of the church, some still today, but those miraculous signs always pointed to the message of Jesus. They pointed to the message. They were not on their own for a miracle. It was something to help them to validate the message of the hope in Jesus Christ. So things intensified until this plan was hatched to assassinate Paul and Barnabas. And upon learning of this, they fled from Lyconia. They went to Lystra and Derbe and around surrounding area. And the phrasing of verse six seems to indicate they just started traveling, hitting town after town after town, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're gonna pick up in verse eight and spend most of our time in Lystra. Some 20 miles south of Iconium, Paul and Barnabas were walking through Lystra and they encountered a disabled man. They'd been crippled from birth, had never walked which brings to mind other healing incidents in the book of Acts, doesn't it? Such as in chapter nine, when Peter healed Aeneas, uh, who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. And the result was a huge, huge response of people turning to Jesus Christ. And then in chapter three, when Peter and John were walking and they saw a man who had been lame from birth, and Peter said, I don't have silver or gold from you, but what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. And that miracle, again, validated the work and the power of Jesus Christ. And now back in chapter 14, we're told that this disabled man, somehow listening to Paul, interacting with him, and, and says that Paul knew he believed. There was something about he, he sensed or knew that this man was believing, he had faith. And it may have been they talked about it, that doesn't have to explain explain everything in this verse, but maybe it was a spiritual discernment. Maybe they talked about it and something this man said led the apostle to believe that he was ready. But Paul called to him in a loud voice saying, stand up. And the man stood up and started walking for the very first time. And then we get to verse 11. Let's jump back into the text there. When the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form, they decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and Paul was Hermes since he was the chief speaker. Now the temple of Zeus was located just outside the town. So the priest of the temple and the crowd brought bowls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates and they prepared to sacrifice to the apostles. Now Lystra seems to be a community of mostly pagan Gentiles. And this is important to note in the spread of the gospel and in the narrative of the story of the book of Acts. Because up till now, there's been a lot of religious people. At least they knew about the Jewish religion and there was a Jewish contingent in the community. And here, it seems like these are mostly non-Jewish, non-religious Gentile 
pagan people. So when they see something like someone being healed, they don't have a frame of reference about Jehovah, the God of Israel. Their frame of reference is their idolatry. Their frame of reference is what they see, how they kind of put supernatural things in place. So they said the gods in human form, the gods have come down and visited us. That's their frame of reference. That's how they believed. That's what they thought. Paul and Barnabas don't seem to get what's happening at first, likely because the crowd was speaking in their own dialect, so they didn't understand. But they were identified as traditional Greek gods. Paul was Hermes because he was the chief speaker, and Hermes was the messenger god, and Barnabas was Zeus, the principal god in the principal Greek god. Now, this wasn't just a random assumption that they made. There was a there's a legend around this time that and according to the legend, Zeus and Hermes once came to the Fergan Hill Country disguised as mortals seeking lodging. And they asked a thousand homes for lodging and food, and they were turned down at all thousand homes. No one took them in. Finally, they knocked on the door of a humble little cottage of straw and reeds, and there was an elderly couple, Philemon and Bacchus, who freely welcomed them in and with a banquet that strained their meager resources, fed them and gave them hospitality. Now in appreciation, the gods transformed that little cottage into a temple, golden roof, marble columns, all of the things that a temple should have. Philemon and Bacchus were appointed priest and priestess of the temple and instead of dying, they became an oak and a linden tree. And as for all the inhospitable people who had turned these Greek gods away, they were destroyed and their homes were destroyed. So you see why the people of Lystra, we're not gonna let that happen again. Zeus and Hermes are here. We are not gonna let that happen again. We are gonna worship them and welcome them as the deities that we believe that they are. So the priest of Zeus brought the bulls and the wreaths and the town gate from the town gate. And this is where Paul and Barnabas started to see what's happening. I wanna pause there. We need to understand when we enter into the world, we enter into people's kind of their, their core belief, their worldview, how they view things. And sometimes we stand back and we criticize it, but, but it makes sense when you believe like they believe. It's wrong, but it makes sense. And so Paul and Barnabas were experiencing a belief system that led these people to a, an incorrect conclusion about who they were and thus about who God is. So now let's look at verse 14. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard what was happening, they tore their clothing in dismay and they ran out among the people shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings just like you. We've come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless idols and turn to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. In the past, he permitted all the nations to go on their own ways, but he never let them without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, he sent you rain and good crops to give you food and joyful hearts. But even from these words, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. So they tear their clothes, which is a symbol of mourning or extreme response to something going on. It's like they are totally, totally rejecting this worship that's being given to them. They likely wanted the people to stop this move toward deification. Remember Herod Antipas in chapter 12, or uh, Kevin spoke about a few weeks ago. They didn't want, they didn't have that response where Herod accepted the praise of people. John Polhill, in his commentary on this passage, writes, holy men in every age 
succumb to the temptation to be venerated. Ministers should follow the example of the apostles and take warning from Herod. I would add that not only do holy men or spiritual leaders in every age succumb to the temptation to be venerated, but it's also true that people in every age succumb to the temptation to venerate spiritual leaders. It's both. We need to hear this today in the church. We've had multiple accounts in the past decade of celebrity pastors who've given in, and, and some not so celebrity, we hear about the celebrity ones, but it's happened all over in small and large churches. But they've given in to the accolades and acclaim of fame, analogous to Herod and, and, and their characters eaten up from the inside. The consequences of a spiritual leader believing the praises and accolades and receiving the worship, so to speak, of people is catastrophic. What the Bible teaches very clearly is that no pastor, no apostle, no Bible teacher, no evangelist, no church leader is anything other than a human being who's been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. Different role, different responsibility, of course. But just human beings who've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and this warning is not just for pastors and for leaders. It's for all of us in the church who, who are tempted sometimes to believe that our leaders are just a bit above sinning. And we don't do it in our head, but that our, our pastors, our spiritual leaders, that, that person that you go to YouTube all the time and watch all of their sermons, that they're, they're just above sinning, or at least their temptations are a little bit higher than mine, right? They... They have to be closer to God than I could be because I need them to be because I, I depend on them to be where they need to be so I can be where I need to be. And you see how that gets twisted, right? That we're actually, we're actually expecting a human to somehow provide something for us that the gospel says is only available through Christ. We cannot take responsibility for pastors who become tyrant leaders when they accept fame and worship. But we must take responsibility for creating a church environment. I'm talking about the evangelical church mainly right now. We must take responsibility for creating a church environment that needs our pastors to be less human than we are. Whenever we need someone, pastor, a spiritual leader, a guide, a mentor, to be less human than we are, we're setting them up for failure and ourselves up for failure. Have you ever served on a, search committee for a pastor or church planter or leader in the church. Sometimes we even joke about it. We put together a job description and then we look at it and like, boy, Jesus would have a hard time fit, fitting this job description, wouldn't we? And we laugh, but it's true. We, we put together job descriptions that, that no human being could ever do. Chuck DeGroat, who's a professor of pastoral care and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary, wrote in his excellent book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. He's worked tirelessly for years about this dynamic in the church when narcissism comes to church is his book and in that book he said I'm often asked to write references for, for prospective church planters my warnings about their narcissism are often read as recommendations for them because of their charisma because of their strong character because of their leadership ability because of their influence 
And, and I've read some church planting job descriptions. They look for a self-starter, strong leader, caring shepherd heart, gifted in administration, loves to spend time with people, not deterred by criticism, able to plow through all the discouragement that comes because ministry's hard. I'm like, that sounds like a DSM diagnosis, doesn't it? It's like, you wouldn't want to live with that person, but we want them to lead our church. And, and that's a little bit of what Chuck DeGroote is saying is sometimes we get what we ask for because we, we expect people who are in leadership positions in the church to be more than what they are. That's the danger. I have, in my 36 years of being a pastor, coached and trained dozens and dozens of pastors. I've worked with hundreds more. I've kind of developed my own little litmus test and it's maybe not the best or maybe not the ultimate, but I've developed a little litmus test that I use with pastors to see, where's your heart? Because this is the one thing that most pastors do week after week, isn't it? We stand up in front of people with a Bible and we speak on behalf of God. Now, if that's not something that will feed an ego, nothing else will, right? If you're bent that way, that's gonna feed an ego. And every, every time I preach, 36 years I've been doing this, and this has never, never missed, even this morning, the thing that happens right before I step up here to preach is that I sit there and usually the song before the sermon, I am reminded in my head and in my heart of every sin I've ever committed. In fact, the ones I did this morning, the ones I did yesterday, have every reason why I am the least qualified person on the whole planet to stand up and tell anybody about God, anybody. And then there's this internal wrestling match of like, okay, you're right, you're right, but God says, in Christ, there's no condemnation. And so I'm going to be in Christ and this is a work of God every, every time. And, and so I watch pastors, I'm like, how do you, and teachers or disciplers, wherever you are helping someone else along their path, the question is, do you approach that with who in the world am I to be able to do this? Or do we approach it with, yeah, I got this. That's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. So I think you, track with me there. This is one of the reasons why, by the way, here at First Free, we have a preaching team. We have a pastoral team. We talk to one another in our meetings. We talk about our sermons. We talk about our lives. We push into each other's life. Adam, for example, is going to go, our senior pastor, if you don't know, Adam's going to go on a sabbatical for two months this summer. And if you talk to Adam, you know, his view about what's going to happen when he's gone, is this going to happen just fine? He's not worried about it. And the reason he's not worried about it is because both Adam and we believe if, if, if it doesn't go well, if something really crashes when our senior pastor is gone for two months, that doesn't reflect well on him and it certainly doesn't reflect well on us, does it? Because that means that there's something that's not healthy there. So we try to practice that here. We don't do it perfectly, but we wanna be the kind of church that helps us to walk this journey together with you, even though there are some responsibilities and accountability that comes with being a pastor, no, no question. So let's get back to Paul and Barnabas. After they've declared to the crowd, we're just human beings, we're not God, stop worshiping us. Paul gives the first sermon in the book of Acts that's delivered to primarily a pagan Gentile audience. And this is important to know. Didn't have a framework of, of the Jewish God of religion as, as Paul and Barnabas had seen it in other places. And this makes it a model for us. It makes it a model for how we approach our community and our culture where there's, there's not even left a framework of who God is, of Christianity. It just doesn't even seem to line up with what we commonly thought of. 
so it makes it a model. Um, he begins with the vanity of their worship, that they would look at mere men and venerate them as gods. Anytime we take material things, whether people, nature, science, money, music, pleasure, and ascribe divinity to those things, we engage in idol worship. By ascribing divinity, I mean we believe that a person or a thing will in some way satisfy my soul's need for ultimate worth, security, salvation. This happens very subtly, and it doesn't just happen with spiritual leaders, does it? I talk to families all the time, and I talk to parents who need their kids to be something. I need, I need my kid to get into this school. I need my kid to be on these sports teams so that I can feel good enough about myself as a parent, or I need my, I need my, my husband to be this, or I need my wife to be this. I need someone to be something for me because if you're not who I need you to be, then I can't feel okay. And there's something of a little idolatry in there that we're looking to people or things to fulfill what God wants to do. It's very subtle. Read Isaiah 44 sometime to get a picture of what idolatry really is like. It's a great analysis. In Isaiah 44, a man cuts down a tree, builds a house, and after he builds the house, he takes some of the firewood and he cooks his dinner on the fire. And after he has his dinner on the fire and enjoys the fire for that, he sees another piece of wood that hasn't been used yet. He carves it into an idol and he puts it up on the shelf and he prays to it and says, deliver me. How futile, how futile. And at the bottom of that chapter, at the bottom of the page of my Bible of that chapter, because in Isaiah says, Shall I fall down before a block of wood? And I wrote in my Bible, shall I fall down before blank? Because on any given day, on any given day, I'm tempted to look at something or some people or some situation or some hope and say, that's what I need. And I bow down and worship it instead of worshiping God. But Paul didn't just exhort them and criticize them for their idolatry, for their vanity. Instead, he points them to the living God Give up these, this vanity, this worthless pursuit, and instead pursue the living God. And he says three specific things about God that should give everyone at least a start on the path to eternal life. First, he says, God is the creator of all things. He made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. Second, God shows forbearance and mercy in allowing people to go their own way as they search for meaning. They were not held accountable. They are gonna be in a minute because he's gonna share the gospel with them, which really gives us hope. So those people that are out there with all these crazy ideas, it's like, of course, they don't know the truth yet. So Paul's kind of validating. You guys think we're Zeus and Hermes? I get that from where you're at. That's probably the best you can come up with. But let me help you see a better way. And then third, God shows himself and he sends rain from heaven and provides sustenance and nourishment for your body and your soul. It would have been new to them to learn that this comes from one God. It would have been new to them to learn that there was a God who created and a God who watched and knew their pursuits and knew that they were looking for meaning in these places. And that same God has been caring for them. That would have been new to them. This is what we might call a bridge building sermon. Paul's trying to connect the people in Lystra where they're at and their crazy notions that Hermes and Zeus just showed up and build a bridge from there to the gospel. He needs to present the unchanging truth of the gospel in a way that they will hear it. Keep in mind, Luke's giving us a synopsis. In verse 18, 
indicates that Paul's message might have been cut off because of the, all the hubbub about them being Zeus and Hermes and the worship that was going on. So it's possible we didn't get the whole sermon or Paul wasn't able to finish the whole sermon and this is the beginning. Uh, when we get to the Mars Hill sermon in, uh, later this year, when we get there, Adam's gonna preach on that. We're gonna get the sermon that Paul gives in Athens and Mars Hill is sort of an expanded version of probably of what this is like because the same kind of audience then time must have passed following the healing and aftermath because from verses 19, moves, enough time moves that the Jewish detractors come. And then in verse 19, then some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds to their side. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of town thinking he was dead. But as, as the believers gathered around him, he got up and went back into town. The next day, he, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Now crowds are fickle very fickle. This is the same group that at one moment was ready to, you know, let's sacrifice for these people because these are the gods who've come down, Zeus and Hermes, and the next moment they're ready to kill them. That happens with our idolatry, by the way. When we, when we invest ourselves in somebody or something to be everything we need them to be so that we can be complete, so that we can know the hope that only comes through Jesus Christ, and then they fail us, we go from needing them to be our God, to hating them and wanting to destroy them. That's what happens with idolatry. Happens with idolatry in relationships, happens with idolatry in systems. I need you to be this for me, you're not this for me, so I have no use for you. And that's what happened to Paul and to Barnabas here. You refuse to be who I need you to be so that I can be blank. Mom enough, dad enough, man enough, husband, wife, so that I can have the retirement that I need so that I can so that I can climb the corporate ladder so that I can have this religious quest so that I can so that I can know what my country should be we can do that even with our patriotism can't we either way you can do, you do it with patriotism and like this country is everything we need it to be like I love this country so much that I it has to be this so that I can know God or, or I hate it so much it has to be this so I can know God. I mean, both sides are trying to find idolatry and patriotism and something very good, which is, you know, loving the country that you're in. But that's where our hearts go. Self-acceptance, trying to, trying to find things in substances. When anything on this earth, even a good thing, becomes our ultimate source of value, it's vanity. It's like that painting we looked at earlier. In this story, Paul gives us a model for gospel ministry that doesn't simply condemn the idolatrous practice, but exposes the ineffectiveness of such pursuits. That's really important. Because those pursuits will not accomplish the deep spiritual longings that reside. That's why people have those yearnings, but that pursuit isn't going to satisfy that. He directed them to the living God as the only path for mankind to have assurance and meaning and fulfillment in this life and in the next. So this is a good example for us in our ministry today. Where are we engaging and confronting the idolatry of our culture? And the bigger question, are we engaging and confronting it from afar and just lobbing grenades? Are we entering into it and helping the people that are lost in some weird, erroneous kind of way of thinking to, to link their way of thinking with a pathway that they can find and encounter Jesus Christ. There's no more loving message than to call people to turn from these worthless things 
and turn to the living God. That's what we have to do. Let's pray. Father, this Acts 14 could be a commentary on St. Louis, commentary on the United States, commentary on our world today in 2023. There's so many, so many people that are grasping at things that are just transient, ways of thinking, systems, people, power, pleasure. And then you call us to come and not just criticize them, but to come and to help them to see that that pursuit is actually, there's something inherently, inherently noble about that pursuit to know purpose and meaning. And we have the privilege of being able to come alongside people and groups and help them to know that if that pursuit could just be directed and be linked with the God who created them and the God who loves them, the God who draws them to himself, that their salvation and freedom and ultimately purpose and meaningful ministry and discipleship. Father, help us to do that. Help us to do it humbly. Fill us with your spirit that we might follow you faithfully.